0: At this time, let us turn our attention now uh, to God's Word and tackle it in our sermon. And again, we're looking at Isaiah 53 this morning, and it's not a usual text uh, for Palm Sunday. Typically, Palm Sunday, we'd be reading Matthew 21 and preaching on that, and and that would be fine. That'd be excellent to do. But as we're continuing our uh, series through Christ in the Old Testament, and we start to move now to that climactic event that all the Old Testament has been driving toward, we thought best to continue in that and to use Isaiah 53 as our, as our lesson today. Well, let's make the link to Palm Sunday. What is Palm Sunday? What's happening on Palm Sunday? Well, on Palm Sunday, Jesus is now making, he knows that his hour has come. And he has now set his mind and his eye toward Jerusalem like a flint. And he knows right where he's going, and as he comes in, he's fulfilling Scripture on the way and calling the disciples to go get the donkey to fulfill that prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. And as he comes in, there's great praise. Palm Sunday, this movement of Jesus into Jerusalem, is often referred to as the triumphal entry. And it is triumphal. It's the king coming in victory. It's the king now ascending to his throne. It's the approach of the king of kings, even Jesus Christ. It's a triumphal day, to be sure, and hence the praises and the the palm branches and the hosanna to God in the highest. But as we think about Palm Sunday today, we ought to, at the same time, give a note of caution, To, to be careful, to reflect now on what kind of king we think is entering Jerusalem. Yes, he's the king of kings, but what kind of king is he? Yes, he is coming in victory. But what does victory look like? Yes, he's ascending to a throne. And yes, to the reception of a crown. But what does the crown look like? What does the throne look like? What kind of throne are we talking about here? These are the little questions that we have to have as we approach Palm Sunday and this triumphal entry. It's triumphant, but it's not triumphalism. It has a different flavor to it. In fact, we know that once Jesus comes into Jerusalem, one of the first things we'll see him doing is weeping. He will look over Jerusalem and he will weep over the state of Jerusalem's soul. He will march into the temple and he'll begin to cast people out and his soul will be burdened over what is going on with the temple of his father, the house of God. So again, it just has a flavor that, doesn't say triumphalism. So yes, it's a triumphal entry. Yes, it's a glorious day of celebration. But we need to strike that little note to remind ourselves, wait, what kind of victory? What kind of king? What kind of triumph? What kind of throne? And for that reason, at least in this church calendar year, fitting that we come to Isaiah 53 and I won't re re-read the text. We already read it. Hopefully you have it open before you. And I encourage you even later to go back and read the text. Spend this week reading Isaiah 53. Your soul will do well to feed upon that amazing text. But as we come to Isaiah 53, I think this will help us focus our hearts and minds and reflect on what kind of king is entering Jerusalem and what kind of throne he is ascending to. You see, it was this that confused the disciples, right? The disciples lived in this kind of confusion because there was this disharmony Right between what they thought was happening and what was actually happening. I think of Jesus' words in John chapter 12 when he says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Right, Speaking of this moment, of this week, of this movement uh, toward the cross and resurrection. And he says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you can almost feel the hearts of the disciples going, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. Right, All the excitement. But then Jesus backed that line up with this line. He said, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, but, what, but now my heart is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? No, it was for this hour that I've come. Well, what? The disciples were dealing with this disharmony of, wait a second, to be glorified? Like, yay, why are you troubled? Why are you asking for deliverance from this hour? this discordance that was happening in the minds of the disciples. And this wasn't just in the minds of the disciples. It was a deep-seated confusion that all the people of God were wrestling with. It was a deep-seated confusion that went all the way back, really, through the Old Testament. It was a long-term failure of the people of God to see what God had been working and what was now coming to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the metaphor that, one of the metaphors that we're working under as we look at this study of Christ in the Old Testament, and maybe this will be helpful for you as we get going, is if you imagine a room, and the room is dark, and in the center of the room on a table or a pedestal or something is a treasure, and it's something of an estimable value. And there it is sitting on the table, but the room is dark, and you can't see anything. And then imagine if we had a dimmer switch on a, on a light, And we could just slowly increase the light in the room so that as the dimmer switch went up, we could make out more and more and more of the detail of the treasure that's there at the center of the table. Well, if you use that metaphor for the Old Testament, you would do well because in Genesis 3.15, if you will, we're told that there's going to be deliverance for the people of God, right? The seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent and the... The serpent will bruise his heel, and there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it's, it's an amazing promise, but it takes a lot of unpacking. It's kind of murky. It's like if, if that's all you had, you'd really be struggling to figure out what the promise was and how it's going to be fulfilled. But imagine if in that moment there the treasure, the great promise of God and salvation is put on the table, but the light is pretty dim. It's really dark. I can't quite make out what the Lord is doing. But then if we imagine that the rest of the Old Testament is God turning up the lights, as we get this progressive revelation and the lights become brighter and brighter and brighter, and we're allowed in all the stories and the epochs of the Old Testament to see a different facet of this treasure that is being revealed. And that in Jesus Christ, of course, is finally and fully revealed. So that as John the Baptist finally points him out, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, there in the wilderness at the Jordan River as he's baptizing, and points him out, what John is essentially saying is, that's it? The lights are fully on. We have now seen the fullness of the treasure that we've been looking forward to. The question we have to wrestle with, and that I think the people of God in the time of Jesus had to wrestle with, is, yeah, but is that the treasure you wanted? See, in in the delay between the initial promise and when it was very dark and to when the lights fully come on, one of the problems is we begin to imagine for ourselves what the treasure will be. We start to create these visions and dreams of what the the amazing treasure is going to be and we kind of, we have fanciful visions of what it will be. But then when it's fully revealed, are you satisfied? Is this the treasure you really want? We have to, that's a difficult question because the the obvious answer we all say is yes. Yes, we want Jesus. That is the treasure we want. Well, again, we have to ask because when it was fully revealed, we crucified him. Isaiah 53, it says he was rejected and despised by men. It's like we had, oh, there's going to be a treasure. Oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome. And then when we get the real deal, we're like, oh, it's not what we were hoping for. Well, that's what we gotta reckon with. And I think Isaiah 53 helps us here even as we come into Palm Sunday so that while we can be our hearts exalted on the one hand in joy and praise over the victory of our king, we understand what victory looks like. And that's really important for us in the midst of our crisis right now because Paul says to you and to me, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, Jesus knew what victory looked like. And Jesus says, my soul is troubled. Jesus is sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet through that, he is highly exalted and given the name above every name. And if we're to have in us the mind of Christ, then we better reckon with what victory looks like and what what the, the crown looks like and what the throne looks like as we go. Okay, so the light is coming on and the treasure on the table is being revealed. Well, what's being revealed? Well, in some sense... We've been studying, and you can go back, I guess, to Affirmation's website and listen to some of the prior sermons as we think about how the revelation of Christ has been expanding and how becoming more and more clear. But when we get to Isaiah 53, it's as if the lights are almost fully on. I mean, the only question we're left to wrestle with is, okay, who is this person? But, wow, there's not a lot left to know. The lights can't get much brighter until John the Baptist says, okay, that's the guy. The lights are pretty bright on Isaiah 53. And hence, the initial question, if you remember, do you, do you remember in Isaiah 53? Who has believed our report? Right? The question that Isaiah 53 sets out, it's almost like here is the portrait. And we're going to look at that portrait in a second. Here's the portrait of the treasure. Here's the portrait of your Savior. <clears throat> now, who has believed what has been said to you? Who has been tracking with us so that when you look at this, you say, yes. Yes, this is what my soul has been longing for. Who has believed our report? Who's been tracking here? Well, what's the portrait of the treasure that we get in this familiar text in Isaiah 53? Again, initially, it's kind of underwhelming, isn't it? Just I, I'll kind of just list out some things and you can look at them in, in your Bible. First, he's a root out of dry ground. That's... A root out of a wilderness land where there's nothing, no water, is not a very promising thing, right? It's a tender shoot that springs up out of dry ground. And again, just from human appearance, just by looking at it, doesn't look like it's got a real future. Doesn't look like it's a great prospect. But here Isaiah is saying, were you tracking with us? Were you prepared to see a root out of dry ground? Were you prepared for this kind of treasure and this kind of Savior? Is your heart screaming and singing Yes, when you see in this wilderness a little sprig of life come out of dry ground. He's a root out of dry ground. He's not particularly attractive. There's no form or comeliness that we should desire him. And I, I don't know if that's merely just in his life, that the life he lived was one that's like, uh, you know, he, there was no place to lay his head. I mean, you know. Or was it his physical appearance? That there was nothing, he, he did not have that kind of initi- that charisma that so often uh, we look for. I, I often wondered when we get this portrait whether you would want him as your pastor. <laughs> not that I have form and comeliness and charisma, you know, but, the, but the question is like, would you want Jesus as your pastor? He's a root out of dry ground. He's not particularly attractive. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. So there's a certain heaviness that is there with him he's despised, he's rejected, and then finally to bring, put a bow on it, he's stricken, smitten, and bruised by God. Okay, here's our portrait of our treasure. And again, is this the treasure you're longing for? Is this the treasure you're hoping for? Now, I know the textbook answer. I know the answer is yes. And I know you're all feeling very good about yourselves right now because you're saying, yeah, I got that right. Because I said, yes, this is the treasure I'm looking for. But again, I just want to encourage you to be careful and really to be self-doubting. Like pull back that yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for because we know that when this treasure fully appeared, they nailed him to a cross. And not just a couple guys, right? It was the point of Jew and Gentile collaborating on this was the way of saying it's the whole world. The whole world has collaborated to crucify him. This is the treasure you're giving us? No, no, no. So I know what we want to say. We want to say, yes, we would have been different. We would have been there with him at the cross. But I guess I just want to encourage you to doubt yourself a little bit when it comes to this. And to humble ourselves before the Lord and to acknowledge that's even when we confess our sins. Part of what we're confessing is our hearts are drawn to other treasures. And we want to, we're praying, Lord, by your Spirit, would you tune our hearts to find our satisfaction in him? That's really what what we want. Okay, so I want to consider in the time I have left two things about this one, the source of his sorrow. He's a man of sorrows, that's what I titled the sermon today. Man of sorrows, so what's the source of the sorrow? And secondly, what is the fruit of the sorrow? So let's think briefly about the source of the sorrow. Why is he a man of sorrows? Well, the first thing I want to say is this is not just because it's just who he is. It's a personality trait. You and I know men and women of sorrows, right? They're the Eeyores of the world. They just tend to be melancholy souls. They tend to always you know, see the glass half empty. We know people like that. Is that what Isaiah is saying? Hey, get ready because the guy's coming. He's going to be a little bit of a downer. Uh, he's a little bit of an Eeyore. He's going to be a man of sorrows, You know, a melancholy soul. Uh, is that what Isaiah is saying? No, <laughs> of course not. The, the, the issue with Jesus is not a lack of serotonin. Right With Jesus, this is not a personality trait. It's a calling. Don't forget who we're talking about here. We're talking about joy incarnate. This this is joy itself. This is the second person of the Trinity who has abided in eternal, everlasting, and immutable joy. That's who he is. And it is he who now becomes called a man of sorrows. This is not, Jesus is just kind of a a, a downer. This is a man who has a calling to bear sorrows. So, let's look at the text. Why the grief? What's the cause of the sorrows then? If you are the eternal incarnation of immutable joy, then why the sorrows? Why the griefs? Well, the text is clear. In verse four, he bore our griefs, He bore our griefs. The immutable, eternal joy, joy incarnate has plunged himself into our grief. So that he wears our grief. He takes upon himself our griefs and bears them up for us. Oh, this is so far, I'm going to get myself distracted here, but this is so far from this idea of some deistic God that is separated out from our troubles and our sorrows. And I tell my students in apologetics, I say, when people tell you they don't believe in God, ask them what God they don't believe in. Most times they will say, especially in the times of suffering and trial and evil, they will tell you that the God they don't believe in is, and they'll describe the higher power, right? This aloof God who just lets things happen under his watch and is unbothered by them, right? They might describe it in that words, but they're describing the God of deism. And I love to tell my students to say to people like that, great, I don't believe in him either. I don't believe in that God, If that's the God you're rejecting, I stand shoulder to shoulder with you. I reject that God also. But let me tell you about the one true God. Let me tell you about the God who is eternal and immutable joy, who came and bore our griefs, who plunged himself into our sorrows. That's not not the God you're describing. If you're going to reject the one true God, then let's at least know him for who he is. So why the griefs? He bore our griefs. Also in verse 4, why the sorrows? It tells us he carried our sorrows. This is why he's a man of sorrows, because he was not ashamed to call us brethren. He came and stood with us and took our burden upon himself. We are the men of sorrows. We are the women of sorrows. That's who we are. Now, the reality is, and I think I mentioned this last week, we work hard to cover this up. We work hard to delude ourselves. We work hard to distract ourselves from coming to the recognition that we are men and women of sorrows. But the reality is, our life is a life of sorrows. We live in a veil of tears. Now, I know there's a lot of good things, and a lot of things to praise God for, and a lot of wonderful days, and a lot of delightful things that we enjoy. Praise be to God, it's His grace but come on now, you know as well as I do that even in those good times, the sort of Damocles hangs over our head, right? We know that there's always trouble. One phone call away. I hate it when Christina calls my phone when I'm not home. I've told my church that. I hate it because I don't know why I live in this anxiety. I know it's sinful. I'm confessing this to you. But I see Christina's number when I'm out. I'm like, oh, no. And I just pick it up and I'm just waiting for her to go, hey, oh, if I hear that, whew. I live under this anxiety because I know, I know that I don't care how well things are going, trouble is like one phone call away. And you know it too. We live under the sorrow and we work hard to delude ourselves. Now, I believe, again, I don't want to turn every sermon into a Corona sermon, but let's face it, it's a time where if we can't relate it to this, then is the faith relatable? But I want to encourage you that this is actually one of the opportunities that Coronavirus does present us. And that is, this presents us with the opportunity to come to grips with the cursed nature of this age we live in. It, it's an opportunity for us to come to grips with the fact that we are men and women of sorrows, that we live in a veil of tears. I mean, I wish this thing would go away now too, but it's not. And, and what this is doing, by God's grace even, I think, is allowing us to linger here. It's giving us time, Lord knows we have time, to reckon with this reality. And I think, and I know this is hard to say, but one of the dangers of deliverance from this thing, which we know is coming at some point, but one of the dangers that we need to be on guard for in deliverance from coronavirus is a return to delusion. I find myself even saying thing, you know what I love about Americans, man, we're problems already. We're not gonna stand by and let this we're gonna figure it out. We're gonna come up with this, we're gonna come up with solutions, we're gonna build ventilators, we're gonna do whatever. Like I keep going to that. And I know in my own heart, one of the dangers of coming out of The anxiety and the angst of all of this is a return to the delusion. The delusion of, we got this. We got this. Maybe we can survive this. And I don't just mean corona. I mean life. It's a real danger. And if you doubt it, well, just look at Israel. They were the pattern, right? I mean, how many times did they get into trouble and they cried out recognizing their complete helplessness? Oh, God, help us. There's nothing we can do against these enemies. And the Lord, in his grace, was stirred to act for them. And once he delivered them, what happened? Go read the book of Judges. It's the theme of the book. The minute they're delivered, what do they do? They return to the gods of the other nations. And we read these stories sitting on our high horses with judgment like these pathetic people But you know, or I know, about myself. I can already feel. I can already feel the relief I'm going to have when this corona thing is done. And I know the danger of my heart to return to my delusions. It's the pattern in the Bible. And those people in the Bible are there for our examples. They're no different than we are. Human beings fallen and sinful. Very easy to fall into a foxhole faith. We are the men and women of sorrows. And He came to bear ours and to remove them for us. And that's why in the book of Revelation, those who have sat in my Revelation class know that one of my favorite images in Revelation is the fact that on that day, on that final day, he will come and not share a good laugh with us, though I'm sure we will laugh in glory, but he will wipe away every tear. Right? Why? Because he became the man of sorrows. He bore our sorrows so that he could wipe away all our tears. Now, I know I'm going long here. I'm sorry. See, this is what happens when I can't see the faces of the people. The faces of the people, are there. I, they're going, come on, Bill. So I'm, I'm sorry, but let me, let me go on. Isaiah goes on and helps us here. He goes on a little bit more on why the sorrows. And I think this is really important because as he goes on, it guards us from mere sentimentality. See, it's not just that he comes and deals with all our sadnesses though it is that, but it's something much, much deeper than that, right? And Isaiah goes on avoiding this sentimentality, saying that what he really comes to deliver us from by bearing our sorrows is to deliver us from the source of the sorrows. It's not just that God doesn't want us to be sad. It's that God comes to deliver us from the source of the sorrow and the source of the grief, which is our sin, It's the fact that we've rebelled against God that has led to all this sorrow. So what does he go on to say? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Affirmation Church, who's been through this series, think, make the connection here. I won't go on about Genesis 3.15. He was bruised for our iniquities. Can you hear Isaiah linking all the way back to Genesis 3.15? He will crush the head of the serpent and his heel will be bruised. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He endured chastisement for our peace. He bore stripes and the stripes he bore were, of course, the lashes of judgment. He bore stripes so that we could be healed. He had the iniquity of us all placed on him. See, this this keeps us from mere sentimentality. It's not just about getting rid of our sadnesses and our fears. It's coming to deal with the source of these things, namely our sin. He didn't just come to deal with the symptoms of the disease. He came to deal with the disease itself. And the disease that causes us to be men and women of sorrows is our sin. And he came to deal with that. For we, the sinners, are the men and women of sorrows, right? What does Isaiah say here in the text? All we like sheep have gone astray. This is what we confess in our confession of sin. This is why he became a man of sorrows, because who are we? We're the sheep. And what did we do as sheep? All we like sheep went astray. We cared about, we went our own way, it says, This is the nature of man and our sin. We, like sheep, are self-interested wanderers away from God. We didn't want to be in his flock. We're the prodigal son, right, that want the dad's money. I want his goodies. I want all the stuff that God the Father gives his people. I want that, and I want to be out of here. See you later. I want your money, Dad, but I don't want you. That's our nature. We're like sheep. We wander away. We don't want the father. We don't want the shepherd. And where do we wander to? Straight to the slaughterhouse. The prodigal son goes into the city, enjoys it for a little while, but then ends up in utter poverty in the pig pen. We wander from our sin and we wander straight like idiots Straight into the slaughterhouse. But what does our God, what does our Savior, what does the man of sorrows do? What does the text say? Our good shepherd becomes a lamb. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, right? he went. Like a lamb before it shears is silent. so he went, not raising his voice, You know what your God did? Do you know what your good shepherd did? Your good shepherd became a lamb so that he could stand in your place and walk straight into the slaughterhouse in your place so that you could be freed and brought back into the pen, into the father's house and have a party thrown for you. That's what we receive because the man of sorrows, the infinite joy, joy incarnate became a lamb, became a man of sorrows, became acquainted with grief, bore your iniquities, bore your transgressions, bore the stripes that your transgressions deserved, walked into the slaughterhouse for you, was stricken, smitten and afflicted, bruised by God, crushed so that you could live. That is the good news of the gospel. This is what our treasure is. This is the brightness and the fullness of the treasure. May it be the treasure that we want and that we long for. Because I will tell you this it's the treasure that our soul needs. The source of the sorrow is our sorrow. Now, finally, and I won't linger here because it's really next week's sermon what is the fruit of the sorrows? Well, of course, we know the fruit of the sorrows is glorious, glorious success. We'll touch on that next week. But just so as not to leave you hanging, the text tells us, right? Gives us a little preview, if you will. It says, he will see the fruit of his work and be satisfied. That is, just as God created and in creation saw his work and said, ah, it is good. So also here, Jesus Christ will see the fruit of his hands And he will say, it is very good. He will see, he will have his work fulfilled. And he, the will of the Father, will prosper in his hand. Jesus Christ will be seated in the heavens with all authority in heaven and earth, at the right hand of the Father. This is the good news of the gospel. Think about the word we read from Philippians chapter two. He humbled himself, becoming faithful and obedient as a servant, even to the point of death on the cross. And therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. Now, Paul says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let us celebrate this week as we come into Holy Week. Let us celebrate the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But let us do it with sobriety. Because as we come into this week, we will not only celebrate His great work, but we'll have to come to grips with our sin, because it's our sin that drove Him to the cross. But let us not linger there. Let us deal with it, but not be overcome with grief. For your grief has been borne by Christ. And He, the one who bore your sorrows and who bore your grief, is even now raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, having and bearing all authority in heaven and earth, and being utterly and completely satisfied in the work that he has accomplished for you and for me. This is the good news of the gospel. May this week be a week in which we remember and celebrate the man of sorrows, for he bore your sorrows, brothers and sisters. Praise be to God. Amen. (laughs)